Hello, and welcome to episode 19 of For Art's Sake, and Art History and Museum podcast. I'm your host, Rhea. So I don't really have anything to talk about in my personal life, because frankly, I can't remember if there's anything to really talk about. Um, my fiance should be getting his unemployment soon. It's going to snow. I'm tired all the time, and I have no concept of the day or time or anything, and it's messing with me. Um, this podcast is late. It's going to be late. Because, Frank, I'm just exhausted all the time. I have fatigue, and then with work and just everything, I'm just tired. That's it. Tired, tired, tired. So, there really isn't anything else to say. I'm just tired. I am looking forward to February. Anyway, let's just jump into the episode. I have recorded this, re-recorded this multiple times. I'm just frustrated with myself and how tired I am, and how it's hard to do things, but um, hopefully this will be the one. So one of my favorite things to talk about is important films, historically important films, uh, influential films, and why exactly they're so important and influential, and the impact that they have had on filmmaking, pop culture, etc. Culture? Culture. That's the word. An aspect of that, specifically, is the Library of Congress's National Film Registry. So first, the Library of Congress is located in, of course, Washington, D.C., um, but we're, I'm not going to talk about that. <laughs> um, the Library of Congress has several different initiatives in regards to archiving, preserving, conservation. You get it. And one of those is the National Film Registry. In 1988, the National Film Registry Act was established. The mission of the registry is to ensure the survival, conservation, and increased public availability of America's film heritage. The act was reauthorized in 1992, 1996, 2005, and 2008, and is still going on today. Um, also, just to say, the logo is really cute. It's very similar to the USPS logo in that it has that abstracted eagle, but the rest of the logo is a film reel, and it's, like, cute, and, like, it looks like it's from the 90s. So there is a pretty loose requirement uh, for a film to be added to the registry. It's not super strict. Um, it can be, you know, a Hollywood classic, an animated film, you know, um, they also specifically include orphan films, which are films that were either abandoned by the copyright holder or the studio. Um, this includes forgotten films and film reels that suffer from severe neglect. Um, that's something I'll talk about a little bit. Um, so the film doesn't actually have to even be a film, technically, like as in cinema movies. Um, again, there's no real limits or anything. Um, a, a film can be of any length, for example. There are important newsreels, home films, short films, art films, and even music videos. Um, which, by the way, the first music video to be accepted into the registry was Michael Jackson's Thriller. And uh, as far as I know, no other music videos have been introduced yet. But I think all of Fall Boys music videos should be introduced. And I will submit a thing. <laughs> um, it's also just, it, it's just really important to remember that it is first and foremost a film registry to preserve and promote American cinema. So any TV shows or newsreels or music videos have to be especially important and influential. You know, it has to follow that mission statement. Um, more so, I think, than actual movies. Basically, whatever is proposed and hopefully accepted has to be culturally, historically, and aesthetically significant and has to showcase the range and diversity of American filmmaking. A film has to be out for at least 10 years in order to qualify. So in 1988, the first year that they did this, the American public nominated around 1,000 films, which is, you know, a lot to deal with. 
After that, the registry established that up to 50 films could be nominated each year by any member of the public. So that basically means each person who decides to submit nominations has up to 50 that they can nominate. So the employees of the registry, as well as the librarian of Congress, all work together to put together the final 25 films that will be inducted into the registry, which sounds like a lot of work. (laughs) So you can actually nominate a film online. There is a submission form online. And the submission deadline for 2021 is September 15th. You can do so online, like I said, or you could also mail it in. Um, The website is also really great for finding lots of information, um, of course. Um, For each film that's on the registry, um, there's like a brief, you know, summary of why it's there. Some of them have, or a lot of them have essays. There are um, 800 films. Um, So there's not 800 essays. But you can find exactly why they were added to the registry. But there's also other um, film related. It's not necessarily just the films themselves, um, but it's kind of a general thing. Um, For example, there is this initiative to preserve silent films because silent films face um, a large amount of um, destruction um, simply because the chemicals that are used in filmmaking eventually destroys them with you know, kind of like inside them, inside out. Um, a lot of films were thrown out or destroyed by fire or lost to time for various reasons. Um, so the collection of uh, silent films is very, very small. Um, there is a database on the Library of Congress film registry section that has, um, it's 11,000 films, but specifically it's about 3,300 Uh, materials and where they exist. Um, There's also an initiative to preserve television and um, video camera film. So television such as local television, newsreels, stuff like that, which often are erased or re-recorded over. Um, So there is another initiative to preserve those culturally important things. You can find information about um, those initiatives, um, what can happen to film reels when they get messed up in various ways, either um, by like a human hand or just by the way that they're made or exposure to light, anything like that. You can also see the plan, the strategy to preserve films and um, what you can do about it. So like I said, there are 800 films included on the registry i'm not gonna i tried to name all of them and just like name all the like the year what kind of film it was i got to see and it was exhausting and annoying and so i'm not going to do that what i am going to do is talk about 2020 the films that were nominated or inducted in 2020 and then i'm going to um go through the entire list and kind of almost choose at random but focusing on ones that you don't really expect to be added because there really is some like interesting, like literally anything could be nominated. It just has to be important in some way, influential in some way. You get it. So you probably have seen an article about one of the movies that was um, inducted in 2020 um, because it kind of shocked people. People thought it was funny. And that movie was Shrek, uh, Shrek 2001. Um, let me read the little blurb they have here on Library of Congress's website. Even by DreamWorks standards, the charm and magic of Shrek seemed extraordinary upon its initial release almost 20 years ago, and its power has yet to diminish in the intervening years. With this story of a green-skinned, solitude-loving ogre, ogre <laughs> Shrek, who embarks on the noble quest alongside his new friend, a lovable donkey, the film manages to be both a send-up of fairy tale tropes and an affectionate tribute to them. 
uh, entertaining and emotionally impactful at levels to be appreciated by both children and their adults, Shrek was a mega hit upon its release and has been followed by three equally enchanting sequels. Um, so <laughs> I know that, you know, Shrek is technically a meme, but if we actually think about Shrek's influence on animation, um, it's not a bad movie. It really isn't. I know that you can't really determine a movie being bad by like how much like money it makes because you know good movies can make not make money and bad movies can make a lot of money but shrek definitely had a huge impact on you know the time period and films at that time and i know that basically anybody my age around my age shrek has been a huge part of our lives in pop culture and i think it definitely makes a lot of sense for it to be included in the national film registry like it really it's a movie that holds up and it was influential and like it like sticks <laughs> you know the fact that shrek is a major meme i think shows the power of that film um because i don't think if shrek was really really bad that it would be as lasting and of course bad movies can also be good and still stick to our pop culture um such as the room but there's just something about shrek shrek is just is not bad it just isn't I think that's fair to say. It is definitely funny to see it. Um, but let me read the other movies that were included. We have Suspense, 1913. Kid Auto Races at Venice, 1914. Bread, 1918. The Battle of the Century, 1927. With Car and Camera Around the World, 1929. Cabin in the Sky, 1943. Outrage, 1950. The Man with the Golden Arm, 1955. Lilies of the Field, 1963. A Clockwork Orange, 1971. Sweet Sweetbacks, Badass Song, 1971. Wat Stacks, 1973. Grease, 1978. The Blues Brothers, 1980. Losing Ground, 1982. Illusions, 1982. The Joy Luck Club, 1993. The Devil Never Sleeps, 1994. Buena Vista Social Club, 1999. The Ground, 1993 to 2001. Shrek, 2001. Mona. Kea, Temple Under Siege, 2006, The Hurt Locker, 2008, The Dark Knight, 2008, and Freedom Riders, 2010. So I'm going to just give a brief explanation as to why these movies were included. Um, so with Battle of the Century, this movie was included because it is a great example of preserving um, silent film. So let me read exactly what the Library of Congress has. Um, first of all, it is an example of the silent um, era comedy um, which is really important. But as the Library of Congress states, it offers a stark illustration of the detective work and luck required to locate and preserve films from the silent era. Only excerpts from real two of the film has survived over the years. Critic Leonard Marlton discovered a mostly complete nitrate copy of real one at the Museum of Modern Art in the 1970s. Then in 2015, film collector and silent film accompanist John Marsalis located a complete version of Real 2 as part of a film collection he purchased from the estate of Gordon Burkow. The film still lacks brief scenes from Real 1, but the film is now almost complete, comprising elements from MoMA, the Library of Congress, UCLA, and other sources. The nearly complete film was preserved from one reel of 35mm nitrate print, one reel of 35mm acetate dupe negative, and a 16mm acetate print. Um, with Blues Brothers, I think it's a great example of one of those movies that um, that a lot of people love, that it's a good movie and it's a fun movie. It's one of those movies, also kind of like Shrek, that include, you know, nods to other films or other kind of story making. So with the Blues Brothers, you have nods to 
um, you know, the road trip movie and different types of comedy. And um, a lot of people love it. And I know that most of SNL's movies, uh, movies that made it out of skits, did not work. But Blues Brothers is definitely one of them that holds up on its own. And it was also a major hit in pop culture. But also the movie itself has really great examples of um, just really great musical cameos. There's Cab Calloway, Ray Charles, James Browns, Aretha Franklin, and John Lee Hooker in the film. Um, Bread, 1918, um, is a great example of women directors in the early um, years of Hollywood when Los Angeles was first becoming the home of America's you know, film industry, where women were the predominant directors. Um, in the blurb here by the Library of Congress, it specifically says here that the director, um, Ida Mae Park, said that um, majority of movie fans were women. It follows that a member of sex is best able to gauge their wants in the form of short stories and plays. In an essay Park contributed to the book Careers for Women, she stated that women were advantaged as motion picture directors because of the superiority of their emotional and imaginative faculties, which is, like, really interesting and telling, like, the difference, you know, between then and now. And then Buena Vista Social Club is a documentary created in 1999, um, which is a, it's a musical a music documentary. In 1996, musician Ry Cooter traveled to Havana to reunite some of the greatest stars of Cuban pop music. Um, and then they did two concerts in Amsterdam and New York. And it's just a really great way to show the music. Um, and the filmmaking is also really fantastic. Then there's Cabin in the Sky, which is created in 19. 19- 43. And it's really notable because it was um, a movie that showcased an all-black cast, and it was a major Hollywood film. And this was also during a time, of course, in 1943 that many theaters in the United States were still segregated. Um, It demonstrates the limited film opportunities that black people had at the time and the sort of compromises that they had to make to take those sort of roles. Um, But it's still like a really fantastic movie that also showcases um, a lot of talent that we would get to know later, including Ethel Waters, Lena Horne, Louis Armstrong, Rex Ingram, and Eddie Rochester Anderson. Then there's A Clockwork Orange, which I thought was already part of the film registry, but it's not, clearly. Um, of course, this is a film that um, is highly violent and controversial, and the book was as well. Um, it, If you don't know, um, has a violent white man who's like this gang is in this dystopian new- near future. They wear bowler hats and cod pieces and he commits a violent act. And then he gets um, this sort of, I don't know if it's a treatment necessarily, that is also very torturous. Um, and it really t- kind of just talks about the different types of violence. Um, and it still really holds up. And I and it's also, there's visual stuff in it that just, for filmmaking, is just really fantastic. It was made by Stanley Kubrick, so that makes sense. So it's just one of those movies, you know, that people know, A Clockwork Orange. Um, a dark, the Dark Knight, which came out in 2008. Um, I want to read a little bit more because people are a little bit surprised about that one as well. Um, Bob Kane and Bill Finger's dark, enduring creation first flew onto the screen in a 1943 B-movie serial and would return to theater several times in treatments both camp and action-oriented. But Christopher Nolan's evocative 
2008 work reinvented the already vast Batman mythos thanks to in no small part to its two intense now legendary lead performances, Christian Bale as a titular character and Heath Ledger in the remarkable Oscar-winning take on Bat supervillain the Joker. Set in a dark modern-day Gotham City, The Dark Knight is a visual feast of memorable set pieces, screenwriting flair, and characters and situations imbued with a soul and a conscience. Um, and the last sentence here is the theme of a world turned upside down by fear and dystopian chaos resonates eerily well in the pandemic havoc of 2020. Now, The Dark Knight, I think people think, you know, with it being such a new movie and it being an act like a hero movie that it wouldn't be important enough, but it was very influential for filmmaking and on pop culture. Um, and Heath Ledger is just absolutely fantastic. Are you kidding me? As the Joker, he's the best Joker. Um... And I mean, besides, if, I mean, if you want to look at the Joker as two sides, it's the very, very evil, um, you know, action-packed, dark, or the comedy thing, he's definitely on the other side, like the best Joker. And to say that because it's like a superhero movie, it doesn't matter when superheroes are clearly a huge part of our culture and part of like media is just bizarre to me. Next, we have The Devil Never Sleeps, which came out in 1994. Um, this movie is called a key film by a Latina filmmaker, and it's all about a Mexican family where there's a murder, an uncle is murdered, and the woman here goes back to Mexico, and this all kind of twists and turns. Um, basically, she explores the irrational and logical explanations behind the murder. She searched for searches for clues, and that also takes her inside her own family. It's described as old tales of betrayal, passion, lust, and supernatural visitation, which emerge as we follow the filmmaker deep into the life of a community in the homeland of Pancho Villa. So next up, we have Freedom Riders, which is actually the youngest film at this time. It came out in 2010, and as I said, films have to be at least 10 years old. Freedom Riders is a documentary um, by PBS. Um, it takes place during 1961 with um, more than 400 people who across the nation were taking part um, in the Deep South um, protests of the buses and bus terminals. This was a form of segregation that had continued despite the Supreme Court saying that it was in violation of interstate commerce laws. Um, this takes 50 years after this um, protest, form of protest. It is a two-hour-long documentary made by Stanley Nelson. Um, what's really great about this documentary is that it doesn't use any narration. It uses archival film, and it uses the testimonies of the Freedom Writers themselves, journalists who followed their trail, federal, state, and local officials, white Southerners, and chroniclers of the movement, including Raymond Arsenault, whose book inspired the documentary. Um, so there's nearly 50 interviews, which are um, available at the American Archive of Public Broadcasting. And of course, it may, <laughs> I think it speaks for itself as to why it was included. And it's just really cool because it is the youngest film. Then we have Grease, which again, I thought would have already been in here, but it, it is what it is. Um, I've never seen Grease, not interested, but obviously Grease is a very popular movie. It's huge for pop culture. People loved it. It was hugely inspirational for musicals. What, it launched the careers, you know, John Travolta and Olivia Newton-John. I know people are like really into Greece. So like, I don't want to say anything else. Now we have The Ground, which was a 1993 to 2001 series of films uh, by Robert Beavers. And they're notable for their visual beauty um, and the depth of emotional expression. I think that the Library of Congress really describes it beautifully. 
They seem to embody the ideals of the Renaissance in their fascination with perception, psychology, literature, the natural world, architectural space, musical phrasing, and aesthetic beauty. The ground uses seemingly simple components, the sun-baked landscape of a Greek island, the blue waters of the Aegean Sea, and images of a man chiseling stone to conjure the fundamental experience of holding something close to one's heart. That's beautiful. And the fact that it took, you know, 1993-2001, that's like really interesting to me and I want to check these out. Then we have The Hurt Locker, which came out in 2008, which is unbelievable to me that it came out in 2008. Um, this is a war movie. Um, it's a contemporary war movie that shows um, a, uh, a explosive disposal team. And it's very notable because of the different approach that it takes to war films, not only to showing contemporary war, but it is kind of casting this kind of almost unreliable narrator sort of character and Jeremy Renner, who kind of seems too into the war, you know? Um, but this is especially notable because it was directed by Catherine Bigelow and she was named as best director in the Academy. And she also won best picture for the Oscar, but for best director, she was the first woman in 2008 to receive that honor or the 2009, whatever. Next we have illusions in 1982. And this was made by filmmaker Julie Dash, who also makes music videos and commercials. And she's also a website creator and author. Um, I'm just going to read here what the Library of Congress has. Her film studies began in Harlem in 1969, but eventually led her to the American Film Institute in UCLA, where she made The Diary of an African Nun, 1977, based on a short story by Alice Walker, which won a student award from the Directors Guild of America. Dash's critically acclaimed short film, Illusions, later won the jury prize for Best Film of the Decade, awarded by the Black Filmmakers Foundation, created for for her MFA thesis at UCLA, Illusions is set in World War II-era Hollywood and explores the nature of Hollywood racial politics, fantasy, and the illusion of racial identity. This is an example of a short film, and I think that the description alone um, says why it is here. <laughs> Next, we have The Joy Luck Club, 1993. Um, this is director Wayne Wong's uh, second film to be inducted into the um, registry. Um, I think the other one's... Uh, called Chan is Missing. Yes, it is. <laughs> and um, the Joy Luck Club, it's based on Amy Tan's novel, and it's about basically the relationship between mother and daughter, but specifically uh, immigrant mother and like first generation child, two vastly different lives, living in two vastly different places, connecting to your culture and your heritage, while also like the struggle of assimilation and fighting against that. Um, and it's just a really great adaption of a book as well. It's one of the, um, I remember I'm very fascinated by the difference between books and their film adaptions. So it's something I've been fascinated by and something I love to talk about. And this is one of the best examples. Next, we have Kid Auto Races at Venice, 1914. And this one's really important because it features the debut of Charlie Chaplin's Little Tramp character. Next, we have Lilies of the Field, 1963. Um, Needless to say, it has Sidney Poitier in it, so that's why <laughs> it's, in, it's in the National Film Registry, because, come on. Um, but this specifically, um, he won the, he was the first Black person to win the Oscar for Best Actor with, for this film. So that also says something. Um, but basically, it just shows different types of relationships, um, different just types of people. 
as well as the cinematography of the Arizona landscape. It's basically this guy who's an architect and he builds this um, chapel for some very, very poor nuns. Um, and that's, I don't think I'm doing it justice, but like, it's Sydney Poitier. Do I really need to say more? Next, we have Losing Ground 1982, and this is um, one of the first feature films by Kathleen Collins, who is a black woman director, so that's very important. And it's basically just this movie that explores philosophy and religion. Um, it has two characters. One is a black philosophy professor, and the other one is an artist, and they rent out this house for a month because he was able to sell a work to a museum, and it's kind of like these interpersonal um, struggles. Then we have Man with the Golden Arm, which came out in 1955 and has Frank Sinatra in it, who was nominated for an Oscar for this role, as well as Kim Novak, and is a movie that takes a really honest look um, at drug addiction in 1955, and so it was the 1940s, 1950s. Um, and of course, drug addiction had been explored in films before, but it was never really in this way. And it was Frank Sinatra portraying um, a heroin addict, and it also features a really great soundtrack that, uh, or score rather, that was jazz, and that's really notable. Um, and it's also another film that had to be preserved. Next, we have Mona Kay, Temple Under Siege, 2006. Um, this is a documentary um, that is by members of Na Maka Oka Ayan. I'm the A part, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing correctly, but basically it is a dormant volcano in Hawaii, which is located on a big island. And it's basically scientists use this area uh, for an astronomical, astronomical observatory. And then the local people, Hawaiian people who own the land, who have rights to land, want the mountain to be preserved as their cultural landscape, which is sacred to them. And this is still going on today. Next, we have Outrage, which came out in 1950. This is another example of women filmmakers. This specifically is a feminist film where the protagonist has been um, raped, and the director, Ida Lupino, uses different methods like editing, um, depth of field, um, cinema, cinematography, uh, just elements of cinema, cinema. Oh my gosh, I can't say this. I'm so tired cinematography to really explore her pain as well like her trying to get her power back um and you know at the time 1950 that's pretty major next we have suspense which came out in 1913 this is another example of a woman director um this one i'm not so strong about um this film in particular <clears throat> was a revamping of a previous story uh, done in 1909 by dw griffith um, who sucks. And it's basically an example of taking a story already done in film and then trying it again. Next, we have Sweet Sweetback's Badass Song, which came out in 1979 by Melvin Van Peebles. And it's basically a black exploitation film um, made by black people for black people. And it simply just did not want to focus on white people's interests. And so when the movie came out, white people were like, I don't like this. And it was like, okay, who cares? Which is understandable. Um, basically, he was making a film um, off of like a time period, oh, did it ever stop, um, of imitating black features um, and like attacking black people. And he kind of took stereotypes and 
did his own stuff with him. It's a story about a male performer at a ghetto bordello um, and his run from the law. That's how the Library of Congress describes it. But it has more um, ideological intent, as they say. Um, a critic said it would be difficult to underestimate Melvin Van Peebles' achievement in producing, directing, writing, scoring, and starring in his film, not to mention financing it with the salary he had earned and while directing Watermelon Man. Not since Oscar Michau had an African-American filmmaker taken such complete control of the creative process, turning out a work so deeply connected to his own personal and cultural reality that he was not surprised when the white critical establishment professed bewilderment upon its release in 1941. Filled with enough sex, rage, and violence to earn an X rating, the success of Sweet Sweetback's badass song depends less on the story of a super stud running from the police than it does on a dis disinterest in reinforcing white culture and its radically new understanding of how style and substance inform each other. Next, we have Watt Stat. Watt Stacks, 1973. Um, this is a documentary on what is called the Black Woodstock, which was a concert held by the Memphis Stacks Records in 1972 at the LA Memorial Coliseum. And it's a celebration of Los Angeles's um, overall Black community because previous years, a few years earlier, there were some riots. Um, and basically it has different <laughs> elements that make it so special. There's Richard Pryor monologues, um, there is, um, features from notable artists such as Isaac Hayes and staple singers. And I really like this one sentence, Rufus Thomas dancing the funky chicken in hot pants. I love the hot pants part. And finally, we have with car and camera around the world, which came out in 1929. So this was filmed from 1922 to 1929 is a really great example of kind of like home film and independent film. This was kind of like a vlog before vlogs were a thing. So basically explored the expeditions of Walter Wanderwell and Aloha Wanderwell Baker, who was the first woman to travel around the world by car. The couple, along with crew of volunteers, crisscrossed dozens of countries in a caravan of Ford Model Ts, filming people, cultures, and historical landmarks on 35mm film. Learning the filmmaking craft along the way, Aloha served as camera assistant, cinematographer, editor, actress, screenwriter, interpreter, driver, negotiator, and at times director. The Academy has preserved both edited both edited and unedited, unedited shots from with car and camera around the world, in addition to a few sequences and outtakes from other films. Um, from um, that kind of filming and hurt by her, and it's just clearly very interesting and really important, like to have somebody film different parts of the world at that time and kind of like do this like vlog is it's just really interesting. So those were the twenty twenty inductees and. Like I said, there are 800 films as of 2020. So there is a lot included. So what I kind of did was kind of go through and looked for just kind of random stuff and stuff that maybe you wouldn't expect to be in here. Because clearly, you know, when we think about film archive type stuff, we might think about Casablanca, Titanic, The Godfather, stuff like that. But there's lots of other stuff. Like I said, there's newsreels, music video. Well, not just the one music video so far. Um... There's like even like kind of a commercial thing and there's home films. So I chose kind of random films, including just actual feature films um, that I kind of want to talk about very briefly, briefly um, and kind of explain why they are important.
So first up, I want to talk about a little favorite of mine called Let's All Go to the Lobby. Um, the official name is Technicolor Refreshment Trailer Number 1. It is a 1957 animated musical advertisement that was produced for Filmax Studios. Um, and basically, it would play before the beginning of a film or during the intermission. And you might know it as Let's All Go to the Lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby and have ourselves a drink or something like that. Um, and it's just a very simple animation consisting of six shots. Um, the You probably know the one that I was just singing is like popcorn and like a soda and like a piece of candy or like singing and walking, kind of like doing this little thing. And it's really just a way to get you to buy food. But it's very repetitive. It, it's a um, earworm. And it's very effective. And it's really cute and really, really notable. Next, I have Commandment Keeper Church, Beaufort, South Carolina, May 1940. It is a 1940 documentary. It's a short film, which simply shows a religious service taking place in South Carolina Gula community. And the, it was directed by Zora Neale Hurston. Um, it is notable because, so the Gula are black people who live um, in Georgia, Florida, South Carolina, um, the coastal plain sea islands where they speak Creole, which is also called Gula, um, and is also directed by Zora Neale Hurston of all people. So uh, obviously very important. <laughs> then we have a computer animated hand. It's a 1972 computer animated short film, which was created by Edwin Catmull and Fred Park. It was um, basically just uh, made during Edwin uh, Catmull's tenure at University of Utah, where he had a graduate course project. Um, he created a model of his left hand, used 30, 350 triangles and polygons um, drawn in ink on the surface, and then it was digitized from the data and then animated in a three-dimensional animation that he wrote himself, like the, he wrote the program himself. So this is a really great example of very early animation, uh, digital animation, um, and the fact that he created his own programs. And this animation was actually used in um, a 1976 science fiction film called Future World. Um, he, uh, Edwin Catmull eventually became the co-founder of Pixar. Um, so, uh, very, very important, right? <laughs> I would say that one of the most important animation studios and like the early animation, you know, the program he created, um, would be pretty important. Uh, next we have Star Theater or Demolishing and Building Up the Star Theater. It's a 1901 short documentary. Um, it, it features time-lapse photography, uh, which shows the dismantling of the New York City Star Theater over a period of a month. Um, it's basically important because it is was created in 1901 and it uses time-lapse photography, um, which isn't a typical animation, I mean, uh, filming technique necessarily, but it shows a historic building. It shows um, historic early filming. Um, I don't know what else to say. It's just, it's just significant. Uh, next we have Die Hard. <laughs> and I included Die Hard because I think Die Hard 
because you know we see it um we definitely joke about it because of its part of pop culture and then specifically is it a christmas movie is it not a christmas movie that we forget that it's actually a good movie a highly influential action movie um one of the best action movies ever created um it you know it just has this cultural impact that um I don't know. It's almost hard to describe because it is essentially a contemporary film that we do joke about, but it's been around since the 1980s. Um, It has been parodied and talked about, and there are other action films that kind of try to create the character that, um, you know, that Bruce Willis kind of action man. That's definitely, when we think about an action film, what we may think about. And also, 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 (laughs) um the undershirt that he wore that like little tank top you know mclean's like tank top is actually in the american history museum the smithsonian american history museum next we have disneyland dream which is a 1956 home movie it was created by robbins and meg barstow that documented their family's free trip to the newly opened disneyland um so basically scotch tape had a contest um about a slogan and he won and he got to go to disneyland so he films in three different segments the first segment being the scotch tape getting his family to help him win the contest the second part is them getting the notification about the contest and them traveling and then um the third part is them in disneyland it was shot with a 16 millimeter handheld camera and it's about 35 minutes um and then he um, edited the film later in 1995 to add film, but previously it was just his own narration. Um, a, f- a fun fact about this film that I found out while doing my research is that Steve Martin briefly um, worked at Disneyland. And he appears at 20 minutes and 20 seconds in the film. He's selling programs, which is really cute. Um, but basically, it's just uh, a really great example of a time and a place, you know, capturing that time and place. Um, Because he went to different places in Southern California and captured it at the time in the 1950s, it's just historical preservation. And also the way that he put it together makes it actually a good film. Next, we have Fred Ott's Sneeze or Edison's Can No Stop... kinetoscopic record of the sneeze which is a ni- 1894 black and white silent film which is shot by william kelly l dixon and it features fred ott um fred ott was an employee of thomas edison's in the 1890s so it's five seconds long and it was shot in january 1894 and basically what fred ott does is he takes some snuff and makes him sneeze and it's so important because it's just uh, an example of the history of film. Um, it's um, a part of the public domain. It's an example. Um, so early filmmaking and like action photography was a lot of s- stills created. So you would photograph, photograph, photograph and have these really quick steel- stills and then make kind of an animation of them. So that's basically an example of how early filmmaking was. Does that, does that make any sense? It's just an, an example of early filmmaking. And it seems very, very simple. And it's kind of like a vine. But, you know, they didn't have stuff back then, you know? 
Next, we have Eraserhead, and I really just added Eraserhead because I like Eraserhead. It's a David Lynch film. Um, it's weird as hell, but highly influential. Um, it's just it's an experimental film. It's highly influential to other experimental films um, and television shows and music videos and pop culture and to horror films especially. Um, I think that we still have like this thing with horror films that we don't consider horror films to be like legitimate or something. So I definitely did include some horror films that were included in the film industry because horror films can be important and influential. Next, I have Gertie the Dinosaur, which is a favorite of mine. It's a 1914 animated short film made by Windsor McKay. And it's actually the earliest animated film to feature a dinosaur, which is fun. Um, but it's just like this cute little dinosaur who's just chilling. Um, I, I mean, it's just, you know, an example of early animation. So it's incredibly important to park, put this in the film registry and to preserve it. It's just really cute. If you haven't seen it, please watch it. This was the first, one of the animations, first animations to use registration marks, tracing paper, animation loops, and the mutoscope action figure viewer. The mutoscope is a motion picture device that was, uh, that was first patented in 1894. Next, we have Hairpiece, a film for nappy-headed people, which is a 1984 satirical short film. Um, it is a mixed-media short film, and as you can possibly tell from the title, it is about the connection of hair, uh, black women and their hair, and the culture around that. It is a feminist film. And it was created... Uh, did I say who it was created by? I don't remember. Oh, God. I, I just hate my memory. Um, it was created by Ayoka Chenzira. I'm pretty sure I already said that. If I'm repeating myself, I apologize. Um, but it's just, like, a really important film because this is a really important topic. It's one that especially hasn't been talked about as much as it should be. Uh, next, we have the Hindenburg disaster newsreel footage. Um, I think I don't really have to explain it much. It was like this major historical event um, that happened to be filmed. It was 19, uh, May 6, 1937. Um, I just I remember when we were in West Virginia a couple years ago, there was just this random university that I Googled and... I like to look up notable people when I do that. And like one of the notable people, notable people was the guy that was like, oh, the humanity. Um, so it was just like a, another, just like a little random thing. So, <clears throat> sorry. So when the Hindenburg disaster happened, there were four newsreel teams that were there. Um, and they were actually pretty close to, to each other. Um, so you didn't really get like different perspectives. Um, and the newsreel is different than the photographs that were taken. They were in a different section. So this just captures a historical event, a major historical event, um, from basically a different perspective. Um, next we have The Matrix, um, <laughs> which again is one of those films that people may think, hey, no, but no, The Matrix was like a major film, really important pop culture and filmmaking. Um, but also it was made by two trans women, so which they didn't know at the time when they put this movie into the archives or I mean the registry, but still. Um then we have um 
I don't really feel like there's not really a title, but so Martha Graham was um, a dancer and choreographer. Um, she's known for her Graham technique, which is a type of American dance. Um, and so in the film registry are videos or films of her dancing and her choreography. Um, she was an incredibly important dancer and a perfect example of not of only just American modern dance, but modern dance in general. So, and that's why she's a part of the, the registry. It's very important. Next, we have Paris is Burning, um, which isn't like a weird film or whatever. I just like talking about Paris is Burning. It's a 1990 um, documentary film, which is created by Jenny Livingston. It's filmed from the, in the 1980s, mid to late 1980s, showing the bull culture, ball culture, bull, did I say bull? The ball culture, I think it's just my accent, of New York. Um, but specifically in ball culture, it is... LGBTQ people of color. It is specifically black and Latinx people and it shows trans people. And personally, the first like instance that I saw trans people was this documentary. Somebody talking about this documentary. Um, it's one of the most important films I think I've ever made. With Purple Rain, um, which is Prince's film. Um, this is acting debut. He plays the kid which is a character based on himself. Um, and it's really was just a film to showcase his acting and musical talents. And it has really great, like kind of musical parts. Um, it won the Oscar for best original um, song score. It was inducted in 2019, which is after um, Prince had already passed away. Next we have the Rocky horror picture show. Um, which, you know, it's this musical comedy horror weirdness, but it's incredibly important to culture um, because of LGBTQ people. Is there really anything else to say about it? Um, and also, like, the kind of cult around it and, like, you know, hosting the movies, like, Halloween weekend and, like, the live action part. Like, is there any other film like that? Let's be honest. Probably not. Then we have San Francisco Earthquake and Fire, April 18th, 1906. Um, it's a documentary silent film uh, that shows the aftermath of the 1906 San Francisco earthquake. Um, and there's also text slides that explain stuff that's happening. So it's just a historically important thing. It's showing a time and place, and it's also a silent film. Um, next, I have The Story of Menstruation by Walt Disney Productions, which... Um, if you watch like, I don't know, stuff on YouTube, you've probably seen like weird things created by Disney. This is one of those. It's a 10 minute animated film about menstruation. Um, so it was made for American schools. Um, and it was part of like a series of different educational films created from 1945 to 1951. A, a gynecologist was actually hired as a consultant to ensure that the film was scientifically accurate. Um, it kind of really wasn't shown. But with the context of the time and the education at the time, it's historically important. You know, it shows just, God, it's so weird. So <laughs> it was actually commercially sponsored by Kotex. Um, so there was no like tampon use. It was all um, pads and it shows like ways to talk about, you know, um, the uterus and stuff, but like, in 1950s kind of conservative Walt Disney style. So it's just very interesting. Next we have Who Framed Roger Rabbit, which is a favorite film of mine. It's a 1988 
live action and animated comedy. Um, and it's important because of its mix of animation and live action. And it's seamless and amazing. And it's funny. And it makes nods, you know, it has its parody and all this stuff. And it won all these awards. And it's awesome. And it's one of my favorite movies. So it has to be. Um, the Zapruder, Zapruder film um, is next up here. It's a silent 8mm color film, which was shot by Abraham Zapruder using a Bell Home Howe movie camera. Um, and you've probably heard about this before, but basically it's the filming of JFK's assassination. So, historically important. Then, Michael Jackson's Thriller, which I mentioned is the first and currently only music video to be inducted into the National Film Registry. Thriller changed music videos. Changed everything. Um, it was a watershed movement. And, like, music videos before then were not the effort and theatrics that we have seen. You know, if it wasn't for Michael Jackson's Thriller, we would not have had MTV be the way that it was and we would not have you know the music video awards or anything like that just thriller changed everything thriller was a movie let's be honest and um kind of ending on like a not super exciting note um the middleton family at the new york world's fair it's a 1939 american film um that was directed by robert r snotty and it was a part of the 1939 New York World's Fair. And it's just an, another historical example. But you know what? I'm going to actually end it on. Birth of a Nation is a part of the film registry. And it's really unfortunate. I mean, obviously, 800 films. Um, not all of them are going to be not racist. Um, but I think that the film registry does a pretty good job of making up for uh, a lot of these films. You know, they include a lot of films that I've already talked about that are short films that aren't as famous films, but highly influential and inspirational. And, you know, people make films because of those short films. It's one of those things, kind of like with the Mona Lisa being known only in the art world. These films are kind of known by filmmakers in the film world. And they're incredibly important just because not everybody knows about them and they're not a huge part of pop culture. Birth of a Nation is unfortunately you know, lauded because there were technical, you know, technological advancements, but who gives a shit? Oops. I think the first time I cussed. Um, it is notable because of the destruction that it has done and the legacy that it has. And if you don't know what Birth of a Nation is, frankly, how do I just be concise about it? It is the most racist film ever created. It helped, um, bring the KKK back to life. Woodrow Wilson, um, screened it at the White House. It is very, very, very racist, and it's the reason why the KKK still exists to this day, and one of the reasons why um, Black people struggled so much in filmmaking, because this was seen as okay. This was seen as a great movie. It doesn't matter if it had technological advances. So did um, not the, when Hitler did the Olympics and stuff. Oh, not the Oh, what was he filming? He was, like, filming something in Germany. I don't even remember. I'm so tired. But the Nazis also had great filming techniques. They had a great film that had, like, this camera work, right? Um, but it was made by the Nazis. So, 
we if we're gonna talk about oh look at this look how great we need to also be like oh oh, oop um this is highly awful and destructive so um the essay that was included for birth of a nation does mostly focus on the negative on the horrible violent awful um legacy impact that has occurred because of that film and it still exists to this day and if your film history class doesn't immediately launch into how terrible it is i don't trust them so let's end on that i guess i just i should probably acknowledge that um there are other films there toy story mary poffins you know basically any movie there are a lot of movies that i thought would have already been created or put on there but there's not actually let's take a look what isn't on there because there is a list of movies not yet named to the registry so let me load that really quick because that's really interesting because only 25 a year that is a lot oh there's quite a lot oh and uh, i think the oldest film is like from 1984 or something like that so let's take a quick look it goes all the way from 1890 with monkey shines number one which is okay all the way to 2010 um we have alice in wonderland black swan i think is one that will be put in Harry Potter and the Deathly Hollows is not an American film. Inception should be added. Some of these I haven't heard of. Shrek Forever After. Yep, yep, yep. The Social Network will probably be added at some point. Yes, Twilight Saga. Yep, that should be. Mm-hmm. That should be added. Yep, that makes sense. Very, very influential. Um, they have 2011 here. Ooh, Tintin. Cars 2, yes. These must be movies that people have submitted before. These can be movies that, since it is 2021, that can be um, entered. Let's let's read them. So what can be entered this year? Adventures of Tintin, uh, Albert Knobs, Barber of Birmingham, Foot Soldier of the Civil Rights Movement. Okay. Uh, Beginners, Bridesmaids, Captain America, First Avenger, Cars 2, The Descendants, Drive, Extremely Loud and Incredibly Close, Fantastic Flying Books of Mr. Morris, Last More, Fast Five, Girl with the Dragon Tattoos, God is the Biggest Elvis, The Hangover Part 2, Harry Potter and Deathly Hollows Part 2. Oh, why is that an American film? Helen Back, The Help, Ugh. Hugo, Eyes of March. Uh, and, oh, uh, Hugo, I saw with my friend. Um, we were doing a surprise birthday party for her, and um, her mom talked to me and was like, Take her to a movie. I was like, Okay. Uh, Kung Fu Panda. A Night in Paris, Mission Impossible, Ghost Protocol, Moneyball, My Week with Marilyn, Paradise Lost 3, Purgatory, okay, Pentecost, Pirates of the Caribbean, All Stranger Tides, Puss in Boots, Ringo, R- Real Steel, Rise of the Planet of the Apes, Saving Face, Thor, Time Freak, Transformers, Dark of the Moon, Tree of Life, um, Tsunami and the Cherry Blossoms, Undefeated, and Warrior. Those are all eligible for this year. So that's fun. Oh, <laughs> uh, wait, let me look at 2010 really. All right, uh, Tangled, okay. I already said, basically. I don't know all these movies. What about 2009? I don't know why Harry Potter's here. Pretty sure Harry Potter's not an American movie, right? Oh, yeah. Up should be in. Up's a good movie. Oh, yes. Alvin and the Chipmunks, the Squeak Wolf should definitely be in the National Film Archive uh, Registry. Uh, that's it. I am campaigning for Alvin and the Chipmunks, the Squeak Wolf. Alright, I hope that you maybe enjoyed that. I know that it doesn't seem like I put a lot of effort or anything. I'm just 
I am exhausted, so I am going to try my best to use my time off to do a better episode for next week, um, because next week is the first, uh, oh, February is actually starts on Monday, right? I'm trying to get my freaking, what is this, a charger? Computer charger? Was that what the word, oh, no. Yeah, you're listening to all this. I'm not editing this out. Oh, no. <laughs> There's a dog here. All right. So, uh, next week, I'm doing an episode to honor um, February as uh, Black History Month. So, I have a, a topic I'm very excited about because I love to talk about it. Um, how do I just quickly give a little synopsis here? Shut up, computer. Um, it's about the African American Museum of History and Culture and some s- specific items that are a part of the museum and cannot be removed unless the entire museum is destroyed and like taken apart and i think it's just very fascinating there's so many fascinating things to talk about with that museum especially as such a new museum um so i'm really excited to talk about it um so next week's episode is definitely going to be more better i'm very confident about that um so now i'm just going to end this episode because it's been a mess and i'm tired and um that's it um i hope that you enjoyed something hope you learned something feel free to tell me about some movies that you would like to put into the National Film Registry. Again, you can check out their website. They have the whole list. There are essays. There's information. Hello, Toby. <laughs> My cat's just moving. Hi. Oh, please don't show me your butthole. I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go. Um, I hope you're well. Um, I hope it snows, and um, I'll, you'll hear from me for next week. Uh, again, this has been For Art's Sake and Art History and Museum Podcast, and I've been your host, Rhea. Bye.